as uh, as I was growing up, uh, I had cousins that lived in Queensland and some that lived on the central coast and we lived at Engadine. And so uh, in the 1980s, when there's no telephones or no tracking devices to work out where people are at any given time, uh, you had to just simply wait for them to come for a family gathering. You weren't exactly sure when they were going to come. And what we did as a family, or at least what mum and dad got my sister and I to do, was to set up the little kids' table out in the front yard with the two little kids' chairs. And we would sit there with a drink on the table, waiting for the cousins to arrive. Now, I probably know now on the other side of parenting that that was probably a way of getting us out of the house and out from under their feet while they were trying to make the food for the day. Nevertheless, that's what we did. We sat there for sometimes hour upon hour waiting for the family to arrive. Today, we have found someone who has arrived. Except we might not have been waiting. This passage in Matthew's Gospel has us talking about the Messiah who has arrived. For those who knew the Bible and the Scriptures well... They would understand that these passages of Scripture are about the Messiah, the Messiah who was promised and the Messiah who has arrived, the one that we'd waited for, the one that we'd metaphorically sat out the front and waited for. But we don't quite read the Bible in the same way, do we? We don't look at these passages in the same sort of way. And so this morning, I want to open up this passage of Scripture for you to show you how the Messiah has arrived and what that means for us some 2,000 years later. We're going to have a look at these three sections, two women, two men, and two responses, and then what it means for us in 2023. Uh, There'll be a question time afterwards as well, uh, back today. So if you want to ask a question, slido.com, hashtag is HBSP. Let me pray and we'll dive into God's word together. Heavenly Father, please uh, allow us to uh, put aside all the distractions of the day that we might see uh, the Lord Jesus clearly and that we might uh, respond to him uh, as we should. Uh, Heavenly Father, please uh, work through me and work uh, in all of our hearts uh, that we might uh, take your word uh, to heart and put it into practice and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start in the first little story that's told here in, uh, in Matthew chapter 9 about two women. But before we get to the women, it's a ruler who first of all comes to Jesus for help. Look at verse 18. While he, said these, he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. This ruler is in a dire situation. We might have read the Gospels many times before, but I want you to connect once again with the heart of this man. Imagine where he's up to at this moment. His daughter has just died. What a horrible thing. He's in deep need. And then consider what he's doing here as he comes and kneels humbly before Jesus. This man, likely a synagogue ruler from the Jewish nation, is coming and kneeling before who would have been considered a dangerous heretic and asking him for help. 
This man is taking all sorts of risks because of the nature of the situation that he's in, the deep need that he finds himself in. But he knows, doesn't he? He knows what Jesus is able to do. And on this occasion, he knows Jesus is not just able to heal, but to resurrect. It's an amazing showing of faith that this man has to come to what he would have been considered in his tribe a dangerous heretic, to kneel before him and to ask for resurrection of all things. And so at this request, verse 19 tells us, Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples to go to his home. Meanwhile, another woman comes along. She approaches Jesus not from the front, but from behind. She's an outcast, a woman with chronic illness, most likely bleeding from the womb for 12 years. Some of you have chronic illness that you have to deal with on a daily basis over and over again. And you know the pain of having to deal with such things that don't go away. Added to this is the fact that this lady, this woman, is not only uh, uh, dealing with chronic disease, but is, as a result, an outcast. She's kicked out of the community like the leper we saw back in chapter 8. But she thinks to herself in verse 21, If only I touch the garment of Jesus, I will be made well. And verse 22 tells us clearly, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Or, or literally, your faith has saved you. And instantly the woman was made well. Instantly the woman was saved. This woman comes to Jesus, again humbly, from behind, wishing to touch the edge of the garment, but it's her faith in the Lord Jesus, we're told, that makes her well. Well, meanwhile, Matthew tells us the story really quickly. He gets to the house of the ruler. And what he finds there is the funeral proceedings in full swing. Look at verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. Why are they laughing? Well, Matthew puts this detail in here for us so that we might understand what's going on. You see, in the ancient world, it was very normal for everybody, including poor families, perhaps like this ruler, to have official mourners paid to come to their house when someone had died. It was normal to have at least two flute players and one professional woman wailer. I'm not quite sure how that would work, but anyway who would come to the house and professionally wail and play the flute. And if you were more uh, uh, rich, you would have more of these people around and, 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 and there would be quite a noise around your loss. And we know that this usually happened on at least day four, of, uh, day four after death. And Jesus comes in and says, no, she's not dead, she's just asleep. You can understand why all these people would laugh at him. Put yourself in those shoes for a moment. Imagine you are at a funeral and there's been a week or so that's gone by since the person has died. We don't have flutes and official mourners on site, but what we do have is a pretty patterned response at a funeral, don't we? We have a photo presentation. 
we have background music, we have a song to reflect upon, and imagine all of those things are happening, perhaps even in a building like this. And someone comes into the building and says, everybody out, the person in the coffin is just asleep. How would you respond? Surely you would at least internally think, this guy's mad. It's outrageous what he's saying here. It is outrageous that Jesus is saying to everyone, get out, she's not dead, she's just asleep, but that is exactly the case. Verse 25, when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Now it's amazing, isn't it, so far in this little series that we've had together? We've seen Jesus cleanse a leper and heal the sick. We've seen him cast out demons, but now... Now we're seeing him raise the dead. We might have read this passage many times before in our Christian life. But it's important for this to rest upon us once again. Jesus is raising the dead. He has the authority not only to cleanse lepers and cast out demons and heal the sick, but also to bring dead people back to life once again. So what's the response to this? Well, verse 26, the report of this went through all that district. So it would. You could imagine that funeral scene. If it was in that in this church here and someone came in and brought a dead person to life from the coffin in this very church, I give you 20 seconds before it's on Helensburg help. Isn't that true? I mean, everybody would know about it in a in a heartbeat. And so it was with Jesus. This scene of two women, both saved, as the text tells us, saved from death, saved from chronic illness, in the compassion of Jesus. Well, we turn there to from two women to two men, two blind men in verses 27 to 31. In the ancient world, being blind was far more common uh, than, it, uh, than it is today, and particularly because of the standards of hygiene. I remember being in ministry in a, a more difficult part of, of Sydney, uh, and I remember one of our youth group boys that was there, he was made blind by his grandmother, who had hepatitis, kissed him on the eye, and he became blind uh, because of the hygiene in the household. Uh, these sorts of things do happen still today, but for the most part, we're lucky uh, to have the hygiene that we do. And so that people were blind in the ancient world is not unusual. Yes, some would have been born blind, but a lot would have been made blind throughout their life because of the illness and hygiene that they had. And these two men were told in verse 27, keep following Jesus. Look at verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. But what's strange here is they're following along with Jesus and seemingly Jesus doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't stop and heal them. He just keeps walking. Until finally they enter the house. Verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, According to your faith, be it done to you and their eyes were opened again Matthew tells us quite simply 
The blind men followed Jesus. Nothing much happened. Then they finally come to him and they're healed. It's as simple as that. It's all Jesus needs to do just to touch their eyes and they're healed of their blindness. It's simple, straightforward healing that Jesus does. But unlike the previous situation, look at how he responds in verse 30. Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Now, the translators of our Bible here have, have done us a bit of a favour, but the, the word sternly is, is not quite as strong as perhaps we would like it to be. Have you ever been in that situation where you've had your little kids with you in an important environment and you can't yell and scream at them, but you've just got to quietly grit your teeth and say, don't you dare. Have you ever done that? Maybe you've maybe better than me. Uh, you probably are. Um, but I, I've done that a couple of times. Uh, that's the type of, of feeling that's here for Jesus. The word sternly here means a highly emotional sort of teeth gritted horse like response, in fact. Saying, do not tell anyone about this. Why is that the case? Well, we'll get to more of this in a moment. Nevertheless, the blind men who are now able to see disobey Jesus directly. And you see at the end of verse 31, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Another post on Facebook, Helensburg help once again for everyone to know about. Two women, two men and verses 32 to 34, two responses. Verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. Again, a very simple healing that takes place here. This word for mute uh, can mean uh, that the man can't talk or that the man can't hear. The word is actually the same. Now, obviously, in this case, it's that the man can't talk, but perhaps he also couldn't hear. Uh, it's possible that it was both here. Nevertheless, we're told the reason was that he was demon-possessed, the demon is brought out of him, he's healed, and he's able to talk. A simple healing, but look at the two responses in verse 33 and 34. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. There's two responses, isn't there, to the miracles and activities of Jesus. The crowd, on the one hand, are amazed with what Jesus is able to do. We've never seen anything like this before. But the Pharisees, they say it's evil what Jesus is doing. Notice they can't deny that Jesus has actually done it. They've seen these miraculous things happen right in front of their eyes, but they attribute it to the work of evil. Have you ever thought... Or have you ever heard someone say, if only there were more miraculous things done in the name of Jesus today, more people would believe in him and come to trust the Lord Jesus. Well, this passage shows us that that's just simply not true. The son of God doing these amazing things in front of people firsthand and they still interpret it in two different ways, don't they? Some are amazed, but they don't trust God. And others think that it's the work of evil. Two responses to the work of Jesus. And so here in these three little sections of scripture, we have two women and two men and two responses. 
And they're wonderful stories. But what does it mean for us? I mean, many people have read these parts of the Bible. In fact, if you were to ask any regular person walking down the street today in our own town here, what do you think Jesus did? They'd probably repeat some of these stories to us, even if they've never been in church before. They know the stories. They understand them. For many, it reads just like a novel. A bunch of great stuff that happens, miraculous things perhaps, but certainly not history. And how does it impact on our lives anyway? Well, to help us to understand this, we need to get down and see why it is that Matthew has repeated these stories to us. Why has he put them in his gospel for us? Well, I think as we finish up today, there are four things Matthew wants to teach us by putting these passages together. The first one is this. As I mentioned at the beginning, the Messiah has arrived. This might not hit home for us. For the most part, we are Gentile believers, so far removed from any of the Jewish background. But we understand that Matthew, especially as a Jewish man, but others like him, would have known of the Jewish hope, the Jewish promise of the anointed king, as the blind men say here, the son of David. And these three passages show us clearly that the Messiah has finally arrived. Have a look on the screen at this passage from Isaiah chapter 35. This is just one of many uh, that we could quote about the coming of the Messiah. This is what God is going to do in the world when his Messiah comes, Isaiah tells us. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf. Remember, that's the same word as mute in the New Testament there, unstopped. Uh, and it goes on. Then the lame, lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so it goes on. Can you see how Isaiah is pushing forward towards the Messiah who will come and do all of these amazing things? Matthew grabs these stories and puts them together so that we might know that the Messiah has arrived. He was promised and he has come. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to us. We don't have the Jewish background. We don't have that background of, uh, of waiting for the Messiah, of sitting out the front on the chairs, as it were, waiting for him to arrive. But the Jewish people did. And this is Matthew saying he has come. And he is bringing with him all of these blessings. Secondly, because Jesus is the Messiah, this passage teaches us that Jesus, the Messiah, is for all people. Do you notice here Jesus heals and saves and cares for and has compassion upon both men and women? That's an unusual thing in the ancient world. He has compassion and cares for those who are clean and unclean. He takes care of the insider and the outcast. And what this means for us is that Jesus, the Messiah, came for you. It does not matter your background, your way of life, where you have come from. The Messiah, the promised king, he has come for all people. Yes, the Jewish people thought that he was going to come for them, the Jewish nation. But this passage shows us in just a small glimpse 
that Jesus has come for all people. And that includes us. 2,000 years later, in a part of the world not even considered by Matthew as he wrote this, uh, this part of the Bible down. And it means this. If you're feeling that you are not the insider, that you are the outcast, if you're feeling that you are the unclean, the sinner, if you're feeling that you don't quite fit in any way, shape or form, know this, the Messiah has come for you. He is for all people. Thirdly, these passages show us that Jesus' mission is salvation from sin. These miracles that Jesus do, these amazing things that he does, are signposts. Signposts pointing to his identity as the Messiah. But the Messiah did not come alone to heal. He did not come alone to cast out demons or even raise the dead. He came to save from sin, as we saw last week. He came to save humanity from the root problem that leads to possession by demons, that leads to sickness, that leads to death. He came to deal with the the core problem, the root problem. See, the brokenness of the world with sickness and ultimately death is the result of the root problem of sin. And this is why Jesus says, To the blind men who were made well again, do not tell anyone about this. We find it so hard to understand why in the era of mission, Jesus would not want anyone to know about him. But Jesus does not want his reputation to be as a healer or a magician or a demon-possessed person or whatever the reputation of the ancient world would have been because the miracles that he did are signposts to his authority, but not the reason he came. The reason he came is to save sinners like you and me, men and women, clean and unclean, insider and outcast. These acts prove that he is the Messiah, but they are not what the Messiah came to do. And perhaps that's why these blind men have to follow Jesus for a period of time before finally they are healed by him Jesus mission is salvation from sin and these things point to his identity not to his mission and fourthly these passages teach us what I like to call taster plate theology have you ever been to those restaurants where you you don't actually get a proper meal but you end up full by the end of it because you get little portions of all of the meals that are on the uh, on the menu you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and it's a taster plate right in the middle of, uh, of your table, and you share it with others, and it's generally a, a wonderful time. It's not the full meal, but a little bit from here and a little bit from there. And what Matthew wants to show us here is a little bit, a taster of what the Messiah came to do. These three sections, the stories, the narratives before us today, show us just a small glimpse of what Jesus will do. When the root problem of sin is finally fixed, when sin is forgiven and the world is restored, there will be no sickness, no brokenness, no disease, no disability, no hardship at all. But it's just a taster plate. See, sometimes we struggle with this, don't we? And we say, why not now, Lord? 
Why don't you fix every problem now? Why don't you bring on your kingdom early? Where there is no sickness, brokenness, disease or disability, why don't you do it now? And why does it seem so random? A case by case, someone is made well and someone is not. And we need to remember this, this world, the ministry of Jesus and the day in which we currently live is just a taster plate to what will come in the future. And we can be sure of this. Overall, we can say Jesus is bringing his kingdom where there will be no sickness or brokenness or disease or disability because the root problem of sin will be fixed. See, these passages are a bit like that taster plate. In some way, uh, they want they make you uh, they leave you wanting more, more of a particular type of meal, more of a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And these passages show us clearly what Jesus is able to do when he brings his salvation to people. And it leaves us wanting more. And this is where we need to flex the muscle of the hope that comes in belonging to the Lord Jesus. Matthew writes these passages to us so that we might see that the Messiah has come. He is for all people. His mission is to save people from sin. And he's giving us a little taste of the future, but it's not quite here yet. One day, the Lord Jesus will return and all will be put right. His kingdom will come and we will be in his presence forever where all of the problems of this world will be removed from us. This is the hope we have in the Lord Jesus. This is why Matthew has written this section of scripture for us. And this is why we must go from here ready and willing to trust in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Because we know this. He will not let us down. And he promises to fix this world forever. Let me pray. And we're going to sing and you might like to ask a question as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us in the book of Matthew. Please uh, remind us that the Messiah has come for all of us to save us from sin and to give us that taste of what the future will look like. Please remind us of this and help us to trust in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's pause for a bit and if you want to ask a question or make a reflection, this would be the time to do it and then uh, we'll come back and see you.